Diane, Bo here. We're doing two episodes today. Drop it. Duncan and Bo come correct. Hey, everybody. It's your old pal, Bo. I'm here with your other old pal, Duncan McLeish. Less of the old Bo, but fine, thanks. Yeah, I guess I am <laughs> the older one here. Um, so welcome back to uh, to Duncan and Bo go to Twin Peaks. Uh, this will be the first episode of this particular podcast in which uh, we're going to double down. You know, we're gonna yeah. uh, we're gonna hit you with Compton and rock you with Miami is what we're gonna do. <laughs> oh, no, you did not. I did. <laughs> no, you did not. Not on this show. Uh, well, that's the sub sub podcast we're gonna do. Just all about famous rapper beefs. Uh, uh, what, I, what I love about this show is the amount of additional work we give ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, a lot of ambition and, and a, a very poor amount of follow through. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, we are we are kind of hurtling headlong towards the, uh, boy, you just got to pinch yourself every time you say it, but the new, ep- uh, new season of Twin Peaks. Um, so... Uh, thus begins our uh, our mad dash, as it were, where we are going to cover two episodes per show. Um, hopefully, these episodes will not be giant marathons. We have we have a rule for ourselves about mm-hmm. uh, keeping each individual episode a little bit uh, shorter. But yes. you know, it that is all going to be contingent on how much Deputy Hawk is in any given episode. Ka-ka! Uh, and and there is some quality hawk stuff ahead of us in today's uh, today's episode of the podcast. We are looking at episodes five and six, or six and seven, depending on how you're numbering. <laughs> not, this show's not complicated enough, Bo. I'm not pointing any fingers, but I'm saying <laughs> sometimes it might be easy to confuse which episode is which. But in this case, we are doing uh, the episodes. Cooper's dreams and realization time. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, before we dip into that, Duncan, uh, I do want to continue the uh, tradition is probably overstating it. The thing we did last episode. <laughs> um, but I have a thing that I want to recommend to you. Oh, yes. Oh, go for it. Okay. This is um, I, a Hulu, unHulu. A Hulu, uh, Hulu esque uh, show, uh, an exclusive to that streaming service. It's a uh, a show called Dimension Four Hundred Four. Uh, oh, right, I've not heard of this one. Okay, so it is a very Twilight Zone inspired, uh, episodic anthology series. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, like it's not as heavy as say Black Mirror, it's a little mm-hmm. more lighthearted than that. Whereas you watch an episode of Black Mirror, you think that could happen, and we're all doomed. <laughs> <laughs> Dimension four hundred four is more like, um, oh, that's a fun little quirky, twisty story. Mm-hmm. And I will I will tell both you and the listeners the first episode is middling. It's okay. But it's not great. Um, the second episode, though, is what I want to recommend. I would almost say, you know, if you don't want to watch the first one, it, there's, it's not bad or anything, but it, it's not nearly as good as the second episode. The second episode um, is um, 
a Patton Oswald starring episode, and he happens. Oh, to be, awesome! Yeah, I, I I enjoy Patton Oswald's work, and the premise of the episode is that he is a kind of loner uncle, uh, movie nerd. You know, not not necessarily playing too far out of type for Patton Oswald, but uh, the episode is him taking his niece, who is sort of, um. You know, like he he's basically trying to relate to her on that nerd level. Like they they enjoy pop culture together and that kind of thing. And she convinces him to go to a new uh, movie format. Like it's some teen. It, basically, it's like a, a God was it the Divergent series or Hunger Games, something like that. It's one of those movies. And she mm-hmm. talks him into going to see this movie in a format called Cinethrax which is even better than like 3D and 4D and all that stuff and the D-Box stuff. And it turns out, of course, that uh, this format is instead a gateway for brain-sucking tentacles to come out of the screen and uh, and, and turn the viewers into uh, like hive-minded monsters. And what I really like about the episode, the episode itself is really fun. But it is one of the best takes I've ever seen on this idea of millennials and the way they use technology and how, um, if not off-putting, how estranging that can be to an older generation that just doesn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually a super thoughtful uh, kind of examination of that phenomenon of, of like, okay, you know, the, this generation of people that are just constantly connected to one another and all that stuff. Like, is that something that you want to be part of? And anyway, it's really good. I urge you to check it out. Uh, I think it ends strong. It's really creepy. I found it to be surprisingly unsettling. And that may just be because I'm old and technology scares me sometimes. (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, I would, I would highly recommend if you have access to the Hulu streaming service, um, check out uh, Dimension 404. There are three episodes currently, and I've only watched the first two, but that second one is is totally worth your time. So there. Oh, look at Bo just recommending stuff. Oh. And I, I, I have stuff for you, because that's what we do here. Um, I, now, I can't remember if you gave up on this show or not, but are you still watching Bates Motel? I have never seen an episode of Bates Motel. Right, you need to rectify that. Now, we're on the final season of Bates Motel, so we are, what, approximately about five episodes away from it being all done. And I will say, as frustrating as that TV show was in the early seasons, like season one was all right, season two was better, season three kind of treaded water, the final two seasons have been some of the best um, yeah, just some of the best TV I've seen in a while, particularly this final season, uh, where they really have kind of crossover, fully crossed over into the the timeline of Psycho, and it's it's wonder it's a show that constantly this season in particular is just rewarding the viewer every episode, especially those that are fans of the the you know the original Psycho, um. There's all these different elements kind of peppered through it, which are just fantastic. And the performances are probably some of the best on TV just now. 
Um, Vera Flaminga's character as Norma Bates is she's a great actress anyway and she's about the only reason I would ever sit down and watch another Conjuring movie but she is phenomenal in this um, and Freddie Highmore as a Norman Bates is incredible I mean he is, this season in particular has fully channeled his inner Perkins and yeah, that, that's a show that kind of has maybe treaded some water for a while, but have an end date and have decided to put everything they have into making sure that it, it gives full reverence to the, the Hitchcock original. So it's a bit of a slog at the start, um, but trust me, when you get through that slog, you're going to love it. I, I genuinely think it's one of these things where you're just going to be like, why have I not been watching this before and why is it finishing now? Um, it's been really incredible this season and, and not many left and I don't even think I think I'm so confident that they're not going to fuck up that ending now that because they can't really you know what I mean they, they have played with some of the mythology and some of the universe of Psycho and swapped certain elements around and changed things updated them for a modern era but it's a story that we all know how it ends so there's not going to be any great revelation at the end of the show it's how they're going to bring us into there that's the exciting part so yeah, watch that. Please watch that. You're gonna love it. All right, I'll. Uh, you know that I'd always heard uh, about the show that it was um, a little meandering at times. It's because they said that you can't have a show with longevity that purely focuses on the Batesies. It just wouldn't work. Um, it's too much time. You need to expand out. So the universe, I say universe, the town they expanded it into. Um, is all prior like the story's set from the moment they buy the hotel prior to the new road going in which is ultimately what makes the the hotel this kind of off the beaten track sort of place so it's all set back then and yes there's a lot of let's concentrate on what this character's doing and let's see what this character's doing and look at all the shady shady goings on in this town and as a result of that when it wasn't focused, it felt like the show meandered. But once he started getting through some of those storylines and concentrating on how does Norman and Norma fit into this, um, into this town, and how how do things that happen in the town affect them on a day to day basis or the people that they interact with? That's where it became interesting. Like that's where it started to. And now that they're kind of they've removed themselves from that in these final two scenes is really down to how do we how do we show the the events that lead to cycle that's where they've really started to to i think tie things up in a way which feels completely satisfying like every single episode thus far of this season has been phenomenal um so yeah you need to you need to get through it and yes like i say it's a bit it's a bit meandering at the start but once you get through it you'll you'll latch on to certain things you like and once you get through some of the drudgery, when you hit the the show's kind of full stride, that's where it becomes a delight to watch. So, yeah, one of the better things I've seen this year, actually. All right, I uh, I'll give it a go. I you know I like the uh, the Vera Farmiga uh, quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. She's phenomenal in this. I mean, like really, almost at the stage now that I'm like, this is the role she was always meant to play. Um, I think they will struggle to ever, even in the future, cast someone as as um, as Norma Bates, and she's pretty much taken that. You know, there is no real 
There is kind of to an extent, but we're not counting the uh, the sequels to Psycho. There has been no real version of Norma Bates on the screen. So she's really had to take that on board, and she's phenomenal at it. But, like I say, not taking anything away from uh, Freddie Highmore, who is... At first, I wasn't fully convinced, but as that shows went on, he he's very much become the the Norman Bates that we know from the movie. So, yeah, very much worth your time. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, and I mean, that's an interesting character uh, of Norma Bates, because there really is no backstory like in the, in mm-hmm. the movie psycho all you know is that she's dead and was yeah. probably very domineering and yes that's it you know there you you really can explode that character out a little bit um so all right all right i'm i'm convinced that'll that'll keep me off the uh normal trash tv i watch because uh, <laughs> i have to admit uh like on i think it's on netflix um, they have a, a show called Breakout Kings, which is terrible. But our, I don't even know what that is. Uh, <laughs> it's not good. It, the basic premise is that uh, some U.S. Marshals enlist the aid of convicts to help catch criminals on the run. The only reason to watch this show is that Westworld's Jimmy Simpson was on it. And he's actually, oh, he is the only reason to watch that show. Uh, but I have found myself watching more of it than I should because it is, uh, boy, it is just like the, you know, tic tacs of television. It's kind of short and bite sized and it's not offensively bad. And Jimmy Simpson's really good on it. But at the end of the day, uh, uh, like every episode I'm wa- I watch at the end of it, I think I really should have done something else with my time. <laughs> I just started, um, uh, um while we're getting all this off our chest at the start, I've just started uh, 13 Reasons Why, which just made its way to Netflix. And I, w- I binge watched the first three episodes last night and basically made a promise to myself I wouldn't watch any more until today because that show's wholly addictive. I mean, like, really, really, really addictive. And everyone's like, yeah, the book's brilliant. I didn't even know it was based on a book because that's how far re- removed from popular fiction I am. But yeah, yeah. I don't know when anything's based on a novel now. And everyone else seems to know. So yeah, it's um, it, it looks like it's going to be really good as well. And I watched that OJ Simpson TV show, uh, that one that uh, Ryan Murphy did. Yeah, the P- Pivot Sex. Yeah, that was um, really fucking good. Like really, really good. That, like that Ryan Murphy, believe it or not, pretty good guy at TV. Who would have thought it? Yeah, yeah. I I far prefer the documentary. Um, oh, the, the Made the, in America the, documentary, which yeah, is... it's it's incredible. But I mean, it's I mean that won an Oscar, so you know, right. I mean, no real comparison there. And it, it really does it does justice not only to the story before, but the story after. And that TV show is obviously only covering the story um, from the the point of the murder to the point of acquittal. Um, but yeah, that that and the fact that they've announced the second season is going to cover uh, Katrina um, has got me fully interested because there was a whole hell of a lot of corruption that started happening after Hurricane Katrina, and it's interesting to see how they take that. And I quite like the idea of kind of true crime being done and this kind of this kind of an- anthology thing that Ryan Murphy is now pretty much known as the the leader of. I mean. American Horror Story is going to be moving on to its fifth season and we're going to have one that looks at 
American elections because they're not horrific. Um, so yeah, I, I can't, I cannot wait. A ton of really, really, really good TV just now. And the danger is all these things that you don't know that are happening on things like Hulu that you know just come out and you were so busy watching the bigger shows and that's before we even talk about the fact that we are what five weeks six weeks five weeks away from twin peaks starting back up so we need to get some show talked about bo we need to do this yes let us uh dilly dally no longer <laughs> yes let us not uh okay so we are uh starting our investigation this week with episode five, Cooper's Dreams. Um, we begin this episode with Agent Cooper uh, asleep in his room at the Great Northern, but not quite asleep because there is a uh, a bit of a cacophony outside his door. By the way, a cacophony, your Duncan and Boko to Twin Peaks, word of the week. Um, yeah, as many times as possible, but yeah. use it right, don't use it wrong. Right. But uh, it, it turns out that some uh, Icelandic <laughs> investors have rolled into town. Quite loud as well, aren't they? Just a bit. Yeah. So at 4.30, or precisely 4.28 in the morning, Duncan, um, uh, Agent Cooper is talking to Diane and saying that up until this point, he has had nothing but a great experience at the Great Northern. But here it is, uh, this loud uh, singing and cavorting right outside his door uh, by all all appearances and uh, so this drives Agent Cooper ultimately to breakfast and there he he, uh, he encounters one Audrey Horn mm, Audrey Horn right and so Audrey is uh, is trying to tell him like hey I got a job and he cuts her off like he doesn't totally hear the, you know, where the job is kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, she is saying like, hey, I want to help you. And finally, uh, for the first time in the series, there is an adult male who's like, wait a second, how old are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, before we go any further with this conversation and I ask you what the color of your underwear is, can I ask how old you are? Am I committing a felony? That's all I need to know. The name's Cooper, Asian Cooper, and I need to know these things. So he asks her, and um, Bo, we all collectively around the world release this huge sigh of relief when she says it's 18 and no longer feel guilty for masturbating. Yay. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, uh, it, I mean, it's good for us all, of course, because the level of guilt we would feel otherwise uh, would really be a bummer. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, but yeah, our uh, Audrey, it turns out, is legal. We can all rest easy. And uh, and I think Agent Cooper looks relieved, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. So, um, he, uh, off he fucks. Uh, <laughs> but now we follow Jerry, Uncle Jerry, Ben Horn's brother. Mm-hmm. Who has clearly been up uh, also cavorting with he the Icelandic investors, potentially and, doing some cocaine? Maybe do we think? I I mean, I think it's a combination of everything. I think it's <laughs> booze and uppers and downers and bennies, husker do's, husker don'ts. I think he's doing everything. 
<laughs> he's trying to fit the kitchen sink up his nose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he is uh, carrying a, a leg of lamb. Yeah, as you do. That has been given to him by Hepa, his Nordic goddess that he has fallen madly in love with. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Jerry says, like, hey, um, the the investors they're they're totally on board. They are ready to uh, to rock and roll. I think we got the investors we need. I found a, a woman that I dearly love. I got this leg of lamb. Everything is going the horn's way. <laughs> and they propose a trip to One Eye Jacks to celebrate. Mm-hmm. But before they can uh, they can run off. Uh, Leland Palmer shows up at the door. Good time, Leland. That's what they call him, Bo. I'll tell you, this is the beginning. Maybe not the very beginning, but a continuation of Leland showing up and being a bummer to everyone and everything around him. Because uh, he shows up and he, and and God bless uh, Ray Wise. He is just so good in this. Um, but he shows up at the door and he's like. I just need something to do with my time is all. And they're like, well, you really just need some rest. And so to prove that he is ready to get back in action, uh, he collapses on the floor weeping. (laughs) You're hired. (laughs) Right. It's the way you really want to start any job interview. Like listeners, if you really want to get a job, when it comes time, like play the interview straight up until they get around to asking, uh, like what your salary requirements are, and then just start crying. <laughs> I love the fact that the they they want to name this project the Ghostwood Estates Project, and what we know from our experience of watching this show is that the book boys, um have said in the past that there's something evil out in the woods. I'm like, that's not ominous sounding at all, this estate's project being built in the woods, which are maybe haunted, or maybe not haunted. Yay, let's do that. This really is the making of... I mean, they might as well build this estate on an Indian burial ground, Bo, because, like, no good will come of this. Have they not watched horror movies? Do they not understand the mythology? I don't know. Yeah, uh, you know... like any horror movie, most of the the time you watch them, the characters don't know that they're in a horror movie, mm-hmm. um, and and act as if horror movies do not exist in that universe. <laughs> so, uh, in this case, though, uh, I don't know that like it's such a weird hyper reality in Twin Peaks. Anyway, it could just be that the only show they get is Invitation to Love, which is all we ever see. So, yeah, I think that's just on twenty four seven. So. Uh, all right, so we're gonna leave Leland on the floor uh, of the Great uh, the Great Northern or the office of Ben Horn, and go to our investigation where uh, Sheriff Truman, uh, actually um, the doctor whose name I can't remember, um, and uh, Agent Cooper uh, are all sifting through. Jacques Renault's apartment. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, because, by the way, I, I love the fact that there is uh, what is clearly a hookah just laying <laughs> around in this, <laughs> laying around in this scene, and nobody's like, "Hey, uh, there's a multi-tube hookah." All right, fine. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, but they they're not really turning up any evidence. But Super Sleuth Agent Dale Cooper is like, "Hey, there's a vent up here in the ceiling." what people might use to uh, hide stuff. Yep. So he opens it up, and uh, I think the name of the magazine is Flesh World, something like it's, that. Yeah, it's Flesh World, which is utterly disgusting. Um, <laughs> so that on the nose, you know. Yeah, well, there is, yeah, so stuffed up there in, uh, in the vent uh, is this uh, magazine called Flesh World. Um, in the pages... Is, is tucked a letter mm -hmm. uh, postmarked from Georgia, we learn, that is a bearded gentleman in uh, a rather lovely satin nightgown um, <laughs> posing on a bed. And so we don't get all of the answers just yet, but clearly something is afoot with the, this uh, this magazine. and, and you know. it's, the same, it's the same magazine. It's the same... Um not the same magazine per se, but it's the same company that put out the magazine that was found in Laura's safety deposit box right yes. back in episode one. So both are Flesh World, which once again makes me want to throw up just a little. <laughs> you know, I I assume Flesh World is just the Cool World sequel we never got. <laughs> so, there, so there was West World, Future World, Cool World, and then Flesh World. That's right. No, that's cool. That's cool. As yep. long as we're just getting that sorted out there. Yep. That that is all legit. So um so let us then turn our attention to the Johnson household. Oh where, yeah, good time Johnson household. Where Shelly Johnson is cooking uh dinner or I'm sorry, breakfast for Bobby because Leo is uh is nowhere around. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, because we have discovered the bloody shirt in the previous episode, there is an AP, APB out for Leo Johnson. So, uh, Deputy Andy shows up at the uh, the door, and Bobby hides while Shelly Johnson uh, basically gives him no answers, but gives him no answers in such a way that it highly suggests that Leo is up to something fishy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of like, oh, you know, I haven't really talked to him. I haven't seen him. He's been real mysterious lately. You know, that kind of shit. <laughs> and really, really kind of dropping a dime on her husband in a roundabout way. And mm -hmm. Andy's like, you know, okay, thanks. And then <laughs> he takes off and Bobby is, is like, that was perfect. And then Leo calls and... Uh, Leo's like, hey, has anybody been asking around about me? And she's like, no, Leo, everything's cool. You should come home, baby. And you know, as she's saying this, Bobby and uh, Shelly are kind of mutually caressing the gun in her hand. Mm -hmm. So there's gonna be some business. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, so we, we leave them there, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of setup here in this episode. Um, 
but uh, you put, putting the gun on the mantle, if you will. Uh, in this case, pretty literally. But mm-hmm. um, so now we go over to Big Ed's gas farm, and Norma shows up uh, and and asks if it's a, a a good time for her to be there. And um, uh, Ed's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine because uh, uh, his crazy wife is. Uh, <laughs> And <laughs> I've got to go to a patent attorney. Um, so she's, yeah, she's off trying to get her patent for the silent drape runners. And Norma has dropped off to essentially say, hey, remember uh, the whole deal about my um, husband being in jail for shady reasons? Well, he's getting out. And there's actually, I think, kind of a nice moment where they both have this mutual acknowledgement that she doesn't want to leave her husband because by all appearances, he is trying to go on the straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. And even though we know better, but yeah, we know better. Hank's kind of a piece of shit. Um, but Hank is saying, Hey, I want to, I want to try at least to earn your trust again. And, uh, Ed doesn't want to give up on crazy pants because she's crazy and it's kind of mean it's like it would be like stealing something from a mentally handicapped person you know yeah, basically these two characters should be together and and in a fair world they would be together but they're too goddamn nice that they're going to stick beside their crazy and malevolent criminal partners indeed uh it is sad it's a tragic love story bro it is star-crossed lovers you know people who should have been together but uh cannot be because as you said they're just they're just too damn nice Uh, oh god oh we'll get to so fucking crazy so on the crazy scale she's like you know on the crazy scale one through ten she's easily a 21 easily a 20 it turns out nadine is also 18 but on a totally different scale. <laughs> Ed, I'm crazy as shit. Um, uh, like Ed's. I, I just imagine Ed's household being like, he's he's had breakfast with Nadine. They're just finishing their meal. She's she's like goes across to the sink to start washing the plates. Kind of lovingly looks back at and says, you know, everything's going to be okay, Nadine. And she's like, yes, Ed. <laughs> that's 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 great. Well, I'll see you later on, and it closes the door. Then realizes that he's forgotten his house keys. Opens the door, and everything's just in flames. And she's running around with toilet paper on her head. Just, <laughs> just like, <laughs> that's how I'm watching that household constantly. Like whenever he just closes the door, he's like, oh no. Yeah, I bet his home repair bills are just incredible. <laughs> just random holes in the wall and fires at one point everything gets painted with poop you know <laughs> poop installation yeah as poopus installation oh god that doesn't cause cancer it just makes us stinky uh <laughs> Just try to elevate the discourse on this show. Uh, 
All right, but let, let's get back to Audrey. Uh, let's leave our, our, our star-crossed lovers and, and go where we really just need to stay. <laughs> hey, let's go where we want to go. Is that what you're saying? Yes. We just want to <laughs> hang out with Audrey Horn. Uh, and Audrey, this is yet another scene of Audrey being way more awesome and, and sexy than any 18-year-old has a right to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, she's legal, so it's cool, everybody. <laughs> we can have a good time with this now, right? Um, uh, I don't feel bad about it anymore. So, uh, so, uh, Audrey is getting, uh, you know, as we saw in the previous episode, she went to her father and was like, I want to, I want to help with the family business. It's time I learned. And I want to start working in the department store because she thinks something is fishy with the perfume counter because that's where, uh, both Laura Palmer and, uh, Renette, uh, Pulaski worked the perfume counter. Yes. And are we... Did Laura... Do I have that wrong? I know Renette did. Anyway, doesn't matter. She no, Laura, Laura worked on there as well. Okay. I had that moment of like, was, is that right? Man, my brain sometimes is stupid. Um, So she is talking to the manager who is, you know, kind of a sweaty palm balding fella. Um, and uh, he's like, you know... I thought we would uh, have you start off doing some gift wrapping, and won't that be fun? And Audrey is like, nah, nah. I think you forgot that my last name is Horn, and mm-hmm. more importantly, my first name is motherfucking Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to start working the perfume counter. Or... I'm going to rip my dress in half, go on, and <laughs> run out of this this office saying that you attacked me. And, you know, given uh, the nature of my relationship with the guy who owns this place, chances are you're going to be, you know, shit camp. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it's great because she makes this transition in the scene of like where, where she starts off like, I just want to help. I'm willing to do anything. And as soon as she doesn't get what she wants, she gets all like sexy and threatening. And then as soon as she is done with the sexy threatening, she settles back into her chair and is like, Hmm, I'm so glad we had this conversation. You know, like, (laughs) you know, this all worked out just like, uh, I, I had hoped, uh, because Audrey will let nothing else happen. Um, Mm -hmm. it's any time. She's so cool. She's so cool. She is absolutely the coolest. Uh, and let us juxtapose cool-ass Audrey uh, with James. Oh, no. James and Donna are on the gazebo. <laughs> Let's try and sound enthusiastic about this, Paul. Let's try. I. All right. Well, so... Less of the sign. Less of the sign when you start your sentence. Let's try this. Okay. So... Donna shows up at the gazebo and James, who is not at all a stupid person, uh, <laughs> is waiting there for her. It's like, hello, Donna. Right. Fancy meeting you here. <laughs> I have deduced through my extensive investigations that we need to find another clue. Right. You, yes, that is exactly how James sound. And J- his head. 
Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. Like I, in James's mind, he is a genius, and everyone else around him is a fool. Indubitably. But, you know, like he's got a monocle and doffs his chapeau as people pass by. But unfortunately, what comes out of his mouth is, Donna, I got secrets. And (laughs) she's like, "Uh, all right, go on. (laughs) And he basically tells her like, hey, my... uh, you know, you know my father died, and she's like, "Yeah," and he's like, "Well, uh, my mother is uh, this poetry writing alcoholic mm-hmm. that some sometimes disappears for weeks at a time, goes out of town, and then just hooks up with a bunch of different guys and drinks." Nice, right? You know, and Donna's like all right, I mean, that's gross, but what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> and he he says, oh, God, it's just the most James shit. Oh, like, <laughs> I don't want secrets. No secrets, Donna. People have secrets and it, it's bad. <laughs> secrets bad. And, it's good. Uh, and she's like, okay, honey, it's fine. We don't have to have secrets from each other. He's like, secrets killed Laura. And <laughs> she's like, yeah, I guess that's kind of true. And then he, he kind of wraps it all up with, she's out there wandering like restless spirit. And, you know, Donna pats him on the head and, and off we go because even even this show is like, okay, James, that's enough. <laughs> We've had enough. Moving on. Right. Uh, so we go, <laughs> poor James. Uh, again, all in his mind, all of that is like, and she wanders the earth like a restless spirit. <laughs> I have deduced that the secrets she kept in her diaries ultimately led to her demise. And I think, Donna, that we should have no secrets between us because secrets are a divisive mechanism in which they forge disenfranchisement between us both. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, he's very Basil Rathbone. Yeah, he's like, he's cuddling, he's kind of like swirling brandy in his glass, you know, to to release the aroma. Sticks his nose in, he can smell gooseberries, wild nettle leaves. Ah, (laughs) really, it's apple juice he has and a plastic cup. Yeah, it's a a Capri. (laughs) With a lid and a straw just in case he spills it. Yeah, a Capri Sun that he's punched (laughs) wrong. He's trying. It's already leaked all the liquid, but he's still trying to take the straw from the door. Yeah. <laughs> no juice. No juice coming from the straw, Donna. Oh God, James. <laughs> oh, why have we made you so dumb on this show? <laughs> I. We. You. One hundred percent. You. That's right. I'm. I, yeah, that's, I'm glad that you connected me there. Bo. All Bo's fault. I think it's the sh- the source material is informing all of this. <laughs> so uh, we get we get back to our investigation of Jacques Renault's uh, apartment, and um, in particular the Flesh World magazine, where we mm-hmm. we see that uh, there is an ad that appears to be uh, a photograph, uh, although a, a somewhat disguised photogra- photograph of Renette uh, Pulaski, 
And the ad reads, a young student requires education in the ways of love. Only uh, generous, mature men need apply. Uh, 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 uh. A cold chill went down my spine. <laughs> and Agent Cooper is like, hey, look at this ad. There are red drapes in this ad. Like mm-hmm. in my dream. Mm-hmm. Also, there is a photograph in the apartment that is of a cabin that has red drapes. Mm-hmm. Which leads us all to believe that somewhere in the woods there is a cabin with these red drapes where the murder might have occurred. Dun, dun, dun. So, it's, uh... <laughs> Spared no expense for. Spared no expense. It's this is a highly professional podcast. <laughs> but the show, as if to torture me, <laughs> abandons the investigation there, or at least the it's... interesting story. The interesting part of the story gets abandoned just as we're moving on to something. Right, because we got to spend a little more time with James. <laughs> It's the penance the show makes you pay for getting good things. Right, like we had this awesome scene with with uh, Audrey Horn and the investigation's heating up. We think we know where the crime scene is. And then, you know, here we are at the double R with James and Donna and, uh, and now Maddie. Uh, and it's worth noting that we also, like when this scene opens, we see that Hank is now actually working at the double R. But, mm-hmm. so, they're enlisting Maddie's assistance in uh in their stupid investigation not Don- like donna's t- uh, taking the right approach but james is you know james right <laughs> you look like laura and she's like i know we we've talked about this before james but <laughs> so, just, every time, just every time he sees all that's how the conversation starts uh, <laughs> I'm James. I know we've met like five times now. You look like Laura. I know. <laughs> Laura had a diary. Uh, yeah, James. Uh, so. <laughs> oh, my face is a fucking mess right now, honestly. Oh, my God. Oh, dear. <laughs> So, Maddie, Maddie orders a cherry coke meaningfully, and uh, so basically they tell her like, "Hey, Laura was keeping the, this diary, and we feel like if she was hiding something, it's gonna be in the house. And since you're in the house, it would be great if you looked around for us, and and hopefully you can trust us, and we can trust you. And and Maddie is on board. Um, but." What uh, they don't realize, because I guess James is part of the operation, um, is that Hank is in the next booth and has heard all of this. Yeah. Um, so, in comes uh, Norma and Shelly uh, getting their, their hair did. And uh, so we have a, a little bit between... Um, Norma and Hank, where Hank is again saying, like, hey, I really want to try. And he's also kind of poking around the edges of the relationship between Shelly and Leo. Mm-hmm. Just getting a little bit of uh, information. 
and uh, and yeah, so you know, um, more the the most important thing I think about the scene, uh, other than uh, Maddie is now part of this investigation, is uh, is that you know Hank is once again trying to be all like I'm really really trying to make things work here, um, but you know he's kind of a dirtbag as we will see. Like, yes, yeah. So. Uh, it's been a while since we talked about uh, Dr. Jacoby. It has been. It has been. And it's been a little while since we discussed Major Briggs as well. So I'm glad that that has kind of come together in this episode. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the colonel has, has brought the family in for some family counseling. And... Uh, Dr. Jacoby is uh, chatting with them all, and then he's like, you know what, uh, let me just talk to Bobby alone. And there's this great moment where the colonel's like, well, I thought this was supposed to be family counseling. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to talk to all of you individually in my creepy luau-themed apartment or office. With my 3D glasses that I'm wearing for some reason. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, you don't want the world to be all 2D on you. Um, <laughs> oh, no, God forbid. No. So, uh, at any rate, uh, they, they're chatting uh, about, you know, Bobby's hang-ups and, and being upset over the death of, of Laura Palmer. And it gets really personal where Dr. Jacoby is like, hey, the first time you were together, did you cry? And did Laura laugh at you? Did she make you feel small? And sure enough, uh, all of those things happen. Bobby starts crying uh, mm -hmm. like a big baby. And uh, but yeah, they're like they talk about Laura kind of differently than than most times uh, you hear Laura referenced in the show because they talk about how Laura had this sort of emptiness, this darkness inside her that always dragged her back down and into the muck no matter how good she tried to be. You know, like her relationship with James is sort of her attempt to have something normal and decent and wholesome, I suppose. Um, but, you know, it's James. So that was a big disappointment. <laughs> um, well, we know it's James because he introduces himself as James every time we meet him. Yeah, yeah. You look like Laura. I am Laura. <laughs> You're pretty. <laughs> oh, God. <yeah. clears throat> I, I like the idea of him just referencing everyone as to how much they do or do not look like Laura Palmer. <laughs> like when he and Donna are, are making out. You don't look like Laura. <laughs> you don't kiss like Laura. Yeah, I know. I'm Donna. You're Lord Donna. Donna Laura. <laughs> Donna Laura. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, the thing that comes out of this, this, um, this psych evaluation sort of thing, this therapy session, really is this idea that not only like was Laura kind of self-destruct, self-destructive to an extent, but like pretty much everyone she came in contact with, um, she tried to make them the same way. Which explains the explains a lot of the taped recordings that we previously heard towards Doctor Jacoby, which were full of 
um, full of temptation towards him to do things which were unethical from her part, not from his part. So um, that would make quite a bit of sense. And it appears that Bobby was more aware of that than anyone else. Um, or in fact, maybe these two were really the only two that were fully aware of what she was like in that manner out with the people that saw it at her worst. They saw it at her best and her worst. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, the character of Laura Palmer is one of the great things about this show and like the peeling back the layers and, and sort of understanding that, you know, she was not only a victim, uh, but she was also, you know, a, a bit of an abuser herself and uh, for the people around her, the people who cared about her. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we uh, we're on the hunt for Jacques Renault's cabin in the woods. Uh, where a group of teenagers are no um, <laughs> sorry it's a different movie um, uh, we instead <laughs> they just at the bottom of the hill and they, they can hear Klaatu Varatam right. oh, don't do it Bruce don't do it right. it would be Deputy Andy although I, uh, he is not along for the ride on this one um, but uh, it, Deputy Andy would totally be the one to unleash the, the gates of hell I love uh, the fact that they're still they're still traveling with the dock. <laughs> the dock is not a cop is still with them in this. Oh yeah, sure. You know, uh, you know, yeah. What 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 if you need someone to take blood samples or something like that? This is true. You know, true. maybe maybe. But it's it's Sheriff Truman, uh, Deputy Cooper, Donna's dad, and uh, you know, Deputy Hawk. And they they don't find Jacques Renault's cabin, at least not quite yet. But what they do find is the log lady's cabin. Of course. And she says, hey, you guys are a couple of days late. Mm-hmm. And it is now time um, for us to, uh, to talk. My log is ready to talk. Um, and so Deputy Cooper... Not Deputy Cooper. Agent Cooper has to ask the log lady. Um, well, she, he has to ask the log itself. Like, hey, what did you see? And the log lady translates from mm-hmm. log to people. <laughs> She's a conduit, boy. She's a conduit. A, a conduit for the log, and uh, and and she basically says, like, hey, the, you know, it was it was t- hard to see because the owls were flying that night. And uh, so a lot of a lot of things are unclear, but there were two men uh, and two girls that the log saw that passed by in the woods. Which, at this point, I don't know how helpful that log is, <laughs> because this is stuff we kind of already know. So fuck you, log. <laughs> well, she did say you're two days late. Right, right. But the, the, this information's only really been discovered in the last twenty-four hours. Had they been there two days before, that information would have been bang on and pertinent. Well, that's true. That's true. But at this point, the log is about as useful as a log would be in any investigation <laughs> into the murder of uh, a young woman. And uh, and so. Uh, they're like, okay, well, clearly the cat, you know, we're kind of on the right track, which leads to one of the most awesome shots in in this series history, mm-hmm. where it's just, uh, it's almost the visual equivalent of the Three Stooges, like, hello, hello, hello. 
But it's like Agent Cooper steps into frame, and then Sheriff, Sheriff Truman's just ahead of him, and then Deputy Hawk. Where is it? Oh, I'm, all right, fine. I don't get a good call. Fine. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> I should just, like... I'm... <laughs> found the picture like while you were typing that I was like I want to see that image again I clicked on it and then it appeared on my screen and I was so busy staring at Hawk's intensely intense face actually that I forgot to call you so you're just going to have to edit and <laughs> alright uh, but yeah and then the doctor like uh, on, on the end of it but it is this like profile shot it almost looks like an album cover or something yeah, you, I just expect them to start singing BG songs. Right. If, like, there were a band called Agent Cooper and the Deputies, it would, <laughs> this would be the album cover. <laughs> so, uh, the Doctor, again, being kind of useless, they hear some music playing from uh, outside this cabin that they stumble across. And they, and they tell the doctor, like, hey, stay here, because there there could be some business inside, and, and uh, we don't want you to get killed. So uh, they bust into the place. It is empty. And um, then Agent Cooper makes the connection uh, because of the, the record playing kind of incessantly. He, uh, he re refers back to the Dream Laura's uh, comment there is always music in the air and mm -hmm. uh, he's like yeah that that's a thing and they also find uh, Waldo the the minor bird that they've been on the hunt for as well as like this place is just rife with clues there's the, the chip from One-Eyed Jacks that's missing the J so the thing mm -hmm. that they found in Laura's stomach they, they found the other part of that chip um, there is twine that matches one of the two uh, forms of rope that uh, um, Laura Palmer was tied up with. So it is pretty clear Laura Palmer was in that cabin. Mm -hmm. uh, and one would assume as well uh, Renette P uh, Pulaski. So we have found Duncan uh, potentially our crime scene. Yeah, but one of them, because we know... We know that the well, we know that there's a train cart that at least one or both end up in, but we found the staging area. Certainly, the precursor is here. This is a huge jump in evidence for for the investigation because this ties the theory that they were at that cabin. Leo and Jack were there um, with, with both Laura and and Ronette. So yeah, we're, we're now. We, I kind of feel, Bo, that we're starting to make some headway into this investigation quite a bit considering there's not many episodes left in this season absolutely we are we are closing in on our killer or killers and uh before we we dig up any more dirt uh it's time for uh some more action with awesome audrey mm -hmm. uh because there's a there's a shindig going on uh, where you know the Icelandic investor investors are being wined and dined, uh, along with some of the hoi polloi in, uh, um, in Twin Peaks, but uh, one thing that we see very quickly is that 
uh, Josie Packard is meeting with Benjamin Horn. Mm-hmm. That they know each other, and that something shady is going on. Yeah, this is the this is the classic switcheroo, isn't it? Really, the old Dipsy Doodle, they call it. <laughs> Although we don't know the full ins and outs at this at this point here, if you're a if you're a betting man, and I know that we both are, but um, I have a bit of a gambling it, problem. Yes, Duncan. Yes, I've lost my house to gambling, um, <laughs> and my wife and I'm recording this right now on a small cassette player, uh, in the hopes that your audio will match up with mine. Good edit and both it does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, like if if you're if you're very much aware of how Twin Peaks seems to twist and turn, you're now maybe understanding that potentially there's more going over on here with Josie Packard than the innocent, hard-done-by-little-widow that we maybe thought she was in the in the, the preceding episodes. There's maybe something a bit more devious going on here, Bo. There is indeed. And... Uh... Well, there's a real see you next Tuesday in the crowd <laughs> of this party as well, uh, by the name of Catherine Martell. Mm-hmm. And uh, Catherine Martell uh, kind of drags Ben into one of the offices to say, like, hey, what what's going on? And not because of the Josie Packard stuff, just like, hey, like, are we on track here? Like, we're we're trying to basically burn down this. Uh, sawmill and and potentially murdered Josie Packard and whatever, all that's still cool, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna give her one last chance to sell, and then you know, I've got I've got my guide. This is all taken care of. But behind the walls, one Audrey Horn is listening in. Yeah, she's she's doing a little bit of the eavesdropping. Uh, plus, Catherine's not like overly happy because. She found a certain poker chip <laughs> from One Eye Jacks, and you know, she's not a possessive person, Bo, but she she does ask, "What does this mean?" Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, Ben is not forthcoming with the truth. Surprise, surprise. Um, he makes up a bit of a, let's be honest, a bit of a shite lie, <laughs> and um, she she um, she takes it into her own hands to slap him. <laughs> A few times. Yeah. Not happy. That's this is living up to the see you next Tuesday standard that we have given her. Yeah, and so but ultimately she is somewhat, if not satisfied with the answers, she's willing to kind of roll with, you know, oh, this was Jerry's chip and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh then we go back to the party where party animal Leland Palmer... Uh, the world's worst answer. <laughs> Is he? Because... I don't, I, I don't know if the... Like... I don't know if they just, like, saw the Thriller music video and just just thought that's how folk dance. <laughs> th- th- this is exactly the reference I was going to make as well. Uh, <laughs> because Leland shows up and just starts winding around all depressed and and moaning mm-hmm. and benjamin horn uh tells uh see you next tuesday Catherine martell like go dance with him because otherwise <laughs> he's gonna freak everybody the hell out and so she does and it leads to this ridiculous scene where the icelandic folks 
um, are think that this is some like local dance. Yeah. <laughs> as Leland is just twisting and writhing in abject sorrow and craziness. And it's it's mad. and Catherine starts doing it as well. <laughs> right. She starts doing it, and then other people join in and start dancing and just start miming Leland and Catherine Martell's behavior, which is just covering up for Leland's continuing breakdown as we see through the show. Um, it is a real Twin Peaks scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think very funny. Uh, well, yeah, this is what we talk about is that weird vein of humor that runs through this, this show that it occasionally taps into. Yeah. The, the, the element of the absurd. And... Uh, while all the uh, Icelanders and uh, the local townsfolk are doing Leland's crazy dance, uh, Benjamin Horn finds uh, Josie Packard waiting for him in his office. And she's like, hey, I found this ledger that's like the real numbers, the, the, the book that Catherine Martell was hiding. And mm-hmm. she's like, hey, I found the ledger exactly where you told me the ledger was going to be. And... Ben then, uh, Benjamin Horn, that is, uh, takes her hand and kisses it. And clearly that th- there is some intimate relationship between them to some degree. Yeah. Um, as well as the fact that they are 100% in cahoots at this point. And as if to emphasize this point, um, we see that one Leo Johnson is grabbing uh big old cans of gasoline <laughs> and loading them up in his uh, his his truck but before he can like get on the move and potentially commit arson um Hank shows up and beats the shit out of Leo Johnson mm-hmm. uh and is like look you know if you ever cross me again I'm gonna I think he he says I'm gonna take that chippy of yours apart in front of you. So Hank is a bad dude. He's talking about like murdering Shelly in front of Leo. Yeah. Uh, but you know Shelly's kind of already Leo's punching bag. So mm. I don't think she wants to die though. <laughs> Probably, <not>. probably. <laughs> but Leo. So Leo goes back inside the house, and. Uh, he's kind of bloodied and, and messed up and uh, is pushing Shelly around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Shelly produces the gun that we saw earlier in the episode. The great equalizer, boy, the great equalizer. Oh, yeah. It, it's why all Americans are given one on their eighth birthday. Um, <laughs> here's a gun. It's just a twenty-two. Um, but uh, so Shelly... Uh, says like you're not going to hurt me anymore points the gun at him and fires we don't see what happens next other than the light is swinging Leo Johnson uh, we hear the gunshot and we hear like a door open and that's all we know so we move from there once more to the, uh, the Great Northern where Agent Cooper is wrapping up his day and in his bed, Duncan, Oof. 
in his bed is uh, Audrey Horn, naked as a jaybird. Mm-hmm. Uh, already, like, tucked under the sheets. And she says, Agent Cooper, please don't make me leave. And, you know, kind of there endeth the episode with yes. Leo Johnson theoretically shot and Audrey Horn all up in Agent Cooper's uh, bedroom. Uh, potentially ready to get nasty. And I don't know. I mean, is it the single most tempting thing that has ever happened in television? Probably. Yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, oh, crap. One thing we skipped over. We're almost done with this episode, but one thing we skipped over was that uh, Maddie does make a phone call mm -hmm. um, to uh, Donna because, you know, she's not going to call James because uh, she has important things to say and, you know, things have to be done as a result yeah, of Yeah, he might that. find something shiny on the floor while it's happening. Or just totally forget it ever happened. <laughs> you know, just plain old James it up. Uh, so, but anyway, she has remembered as she was uh, hunting through the Palmer household that Laura used to keep cigarettes in a hollowed out uh, part of her, her, her bed. And in there has found a cassette tape. Yeah. And so they are planning on meeting so that they can listen to this tape and figure out, you know, what what's going on to continue their own investigation, um, which seems a little unnecessary considering how close Agent Cooper and the rest of the gang are to, you know, zeroing in on uh, Jacques Renault and Leo Johnson are assumed murder suspects. Mm -hmm. Um. But yeah, so that would be episode six. Yeah, worth sure. noting that this one was written by Mark Frost. So this is the first single episode he's wrote purely himself. No David Lynch um, or anyone else. This is a purely Mark Frost written episode. And I would I would argue one of the most cohesively fluid episodes um, since our um, amazing episode three. Um, everything I hear flows really, really well. We make a lot of ground on some of the stories. Yes, it teases us, but it leaves us in a position where moving into the final two episodes of the season, um, it gives it gives the, the story focus, but at the same time really branches things out. So we're starting to take some of the incidental things that have happened in the show into focus and bring in, really tie up a lot of the loose threads. Um, I think that's really, really, really well done. Yeah, yeah, it's it really is a fun, well-paced, as you said, episode. Like the, it really moves, and and you yeah. do get a lot of information. Like a lot of the the loose strings of the you know, the chip, the bird, um, all that stuff. It, it it all kind of gets answered here, even though the there is still the larger question of, okay, it certainly looks like Leo and uh, Jacques were if not the murderers of Laura Palmer were certainly there and so you know let's let's once we find them our our murder mystery is wrapped up yeah um all right shall we turn our attention to episode 7 realization mm -hmm. time yeah 
penultimate episode in season one. So this is um, this is where they say, as they say, Bo, uh, Bo uh, shit's about to get real. Shit is in fact about to get real, and uh, there is some quality, quality James uh, once more in this episode. <laughs> and by quality James, I mean, oh James. James uh, is there, but the quality is debatable. Yeah, yeah. It's just, like James needs one of those harnesses that parents have to keep their kids from wandering <laughs> off too far. You know, come back, James. <laughs> There were some leaves in the water. Okay, come on. Don't chase them. Just leaves. Uh, so this one's called Realization Time, and it kicks off right where the previous episode finishes. So this episode kicks off with Audrey Horn um, wearing nothing but a sheet in Agent Cooper's bed, tears still rolling down their cheek. And um, yeah, we, we, we pick up right from here with... with Agent Cooper, God, is he the most gentlemanly gentleman that has ever gentlemaned? Yeah, I mean, it is the perfect thing to say in this situation. Yeah, he's, he basically says to her, you're a high school girl, and I am an agent of the FBI. This is wrong, and we both know that. Yeah, but it, he says, like, look, at the end of the day, and, and I, I love... Uh, uh, when she asks him, like, hey, do you want me to leave? And he's like, what I want and what I need are two totally different things yeah. here. <laughs> two different things, yeah. And, but he says, like, look, what you need right now isn't some older man to slide between the sheets and take Audrey, Torn Audrey Horn to Funtown. Mm -hmm. What she needs is a friend. Someone who's going to listen to her problems, who's going to be understanding. And so he's like, look, I'm going to go downstairs. I'm going to get us some fries. When I come back, you're going to be dressed, and then we're going to sit down, and you're going to tell me everything that's bothering you, and we're going to be pals. Because that's kind of what we have to be. And uh, it's awesome. I, I don't personally possess that kind of discipline. You know, if you uh, walk into a room with a naked Audrey Horn, then I you better believe that I am going to do my level best and ultimately disappoint her sexually. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, that's not Agent Cooper. That's me. Agent Cooper would rock her all night long. Oh, God, you know it. I, he's probably got some sting tantric thing going on. <laughs> um. But, and, and Sting had that whole song about sleeping with students. So, oh yeah, that's right. There you go. There's a link, Bo. There's a link there. Oh, it all ties together. Everything t goes back to Twin Peaks. Um. So once we leave the just saint-like Agent Cooper, um, we go to the uh, sheriff's office the next morning where Andy and Lucy are still not getting along for reasons that are unknown to Andy still, still you know like she's she calls him by his last name she won't even call him Andy and he's like I wish you wouldn't call me deputy um <laughs> but uh anyway it's kind of a, a fun little scene where she's like you know this is the busy time Andy I can't talk to you right now um but what's really going down here is that they're trying to get this minor bird to uh, speak the Waldo, the minor bird that they've taken from 
Jacques Renault's cabin in the woods. And unfortunately, the minor bird has been um, neglected and is not in poor health. And because mimicry is part of uh, like play for a minor bird, according to their research, which appears to have been done mostly via Encyclopedia Britannica, um, they're like, well, we've got to nurse the bird back to health before it'll start saying anything, which may in fact tell us something definitive about Laura Palmer's murder. If if mm-hmm. the Maya, if the Maya bird was witness to that murder, maybe it'll it'll say something. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they are in uh, in the nursing the bird back to health phase of the investigation. Uh, but what we also get in this scene is we have a forensic report on the cabin and we can confirm that yes uh, Laura Palmer Renette Pulowski Leo Johnson and Jacques Renault were all in that cabin yeah as well as a picture the only picture on a roll of film that is the minor bird uh, sitting on what Agent Cooper says is Laura Palmer's shoulder, which would explain the scratches. Yeah, uh, I, I love the fact that, that once again it's Agent Cooper being a bit of a boss because you get the the picture gets handed over. Um, Sheriff Truman, was, oh, oh yes, yeah, the bird in the picture is like ah, 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 Harry, look at the shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like straight away, it's like this is why you're sheriff, small town. This is why I'm FBI. Right, and. Uh, so th- because they know that one-eyed jacks, like they, they matched the fragment to the chip that they found and they're like, look, we need to go to, uh, one-eyed jacks, which is across the Canadian border and nobody has jurisdiction there because it turns out, I did not know this until this episode. Canada is a different country. Yeah. Uh, I, I was, it surprised me as well. I just thought, you know, it was just an extension of America, isn't it? It's just the sad part of America. Isn't that what I I thought, <laughs> but it turns out that they have their own government and everything. The, the less free part of America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, everyone. If we have any Canadian listeners listening to this, I I jest. I love Canada. Canada is basically. Canada is Scotland to North America. You are to North America what Scotland is to the UK. <laughs> Just the North part that gets, you know, ridiculously drunk and um, laughs at the ridiculousness of our neighbours. Yes. To the south. <laughs> it, I, I like to re- refer to Canada as America's, you know, cleaner, more polite cousin. <laughs> all the all the things we don't like um yeah so um it's out with the jurisdiction uh, jurisdiction but um agent cooper says that this might be a job for the bookhouse boys yep bookhouse boys are writing again transitioning from uh the the bookhouse boys writing again to um oh the johnson house the johnson right. household again where a not dead leo is parked you know, kind of across the street from his own home, uh, with a hunting rifle with a scope, uh, mm-hmm. which you get on your 14th birthday. And, <laughs> or when you open a bank account, I've seen bowling for Columbine. Yeah, that is true. Oh my God. Anyway, <laughs> this country's so weird. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but he sees Bobby. 
<laughs> Sorry, I got a pen when I opened mine. It was just, it's funny. Yeah, I... <laughs> There are moments where you just realize the absurdity of, of your own homeland, and <laughs> it just comes crashing down, uh, more so lately than ever. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bobby is sneaking in the back door, uh, like you do, mm -hmm. and uh, Leo is like, I'm about to kill me a Bobby. <laughs> Not far off what he says out loud. I quite like the fact that like Leo like speaks out his thoughts. Like Leo does, yeah. referring to himself as Leo in his conversation. Right. I, I, he has a little bit of James syndrome. It's not acute as in James's case, but there's yeah. a there's a touch of James. Yeah, there's a vein of James in, in here. Just just a small amount. Right. So, uh, Shelley comes clean with Bobby about having shot Leo, who it turns out was only shot in the arm, uh, in his left arm, and. Uh, unfortunately, though, before... Well, maybe not unfortunately. Fortunately, I suppose, for Bobby. Um, he is listening to the police scanner. Yeah. And there's some chatter over the police scanner about what to feed this minor bird uh, from the, uh, the, the cabin um, to get it back to hell because it's potentially a witness. And Leo hears this and is like... Oh, well, I have a new target now. <laughs> More important target. <laughs> yes, setting in motion one of the greatest things in this season, I feel. <laughs> Which, you we, and animal death. I, I don't know what it is, boy. You just like, it's like catnip to a cat for you. It, <laughs> it really is, but it's so ridiculous. Like this, <laughs> like, this whole plot line is just nonsense oh, it's, yeah it's absolutely 100% nonsense it's like in any other show this would be ridiculous but at Twin Peaks it becomes relevant <laughs> right right like we we have a minor bird witness that we're trying to nurse back to health so that it can start talking and, and tell us you know what it was saying I guess what, what it heard the night of Laura Palmer's murder yeah like in this episode Agent Cooper refers to the bird as a key witness <laughs> so. yeah yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, I am... Uh, I'm not licensed to practice, but I am no stranger to bird law. Uh, I, I'm not saying I'm one of the best bird lawyers. I'm saying I, I know my bird law. And mm -hmm. uh, and he's right on target. Like, the, this bird should be in protective custody, which it kind of is. Um, unfortunately, it's just near a window. Um but all right, so we we now join uh, the Scooby Gang of Maddie, Donna, and James, uh, who are assembled at Donna's house to listen to the cassette tape that Maddie found in the previous episode. Mm -hmm. And they listen to it, and it is a a a, a recording that Laura Palmer made for Doctor Jacoby. Yeah. Sort yeah, of we've a, heard one of these already before, uh, but this is this is some of the other ones, and it's a kind of treasure trove of all these ones that start up the same way uh, with "What's up, Doc?" Um, and this one, she starts talking about, and this is what I was saying earlier on about this Laura trying to corrupt other people by really playing into like baser instincts and trying to to take them away from. Without like 
directly saying anything. She is putting out a whole lot of temptation here. She says that she's having those dreams, those big bad dreams, those naked dreams, you know, the the kind that she knows that Jacoby likes to hear. Um, Which, you know, is... Jacoby, we we already kind of know, was in love with her. Um, Like, everyone else who seemed to be in contact with her was in love with her. And this is why. She's like a chameleon with different people. And this is how she's found her way to to corrupt and and really manipulate Jacoby is through these tapes. Yeah. And so they listened to uh, this tape a couple of times. And James, God bless him, has an idea. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, they realize that there's a tape missing. A tape from the night that she died. Yes. So they they want to try to draw Jacoby out so that, that they can, you know, hunt for this tape. And so James says, um, May, you look like Laura. And she's like, <laughs> I know. And, he, <laughs> and he's like, you sound like her too. And she, she's like, oh, yeah, I guess I do. So they they hatch a, a scheme for Maddie to call Dr. Jacoby emulating Laura Palmer's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get to the results of that. But, um, I, you know, is it a great plan? Of course not. But, no. you know, it, given James's limited means, it's about as good as it's going to get. Yeah, all they all they really need him to do is get him out of his apartment so they can search it. So this is about the best way they can think of it. Not no other way of doing it. This is his best plan, and as James' plans go, this is actually not a bad one. Right on the James scale, <laughs> it's James' scale of plans. This one's actually not bad. Right, this is like this is a solid seven on a scale of ten for James' plans. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. Right above uh, investing all his money in popcorn. Because <laughs> it's delicious. And uh, and and potentially uh, making his motorcycle fly. So... I'm going to p- put some wings on it and then go fast. To fly. Okay, James, just... Well, just him, just him putting like a couple of, a couple of planks of wood in it and then driving it off a cliff. I, I think it would be cardboard. I don't think he has woodworking skills as such. <laughs> and uh, so we, we move from uh, you know the the Scooby Gang uh, plotting against Doctor Jacoby. Back to Horn's department store, where Audrey, it turns out, is maybe not the best retail clerk. Uh, she just... We already know that she she doesn't have much of a tolerance for things that don't interest her, and working on this perfume aisle does not interest her. It's a means to gather information to further her pursuit and, and her investigations to help Agent Cooper, um, even though Agent Cooper doesn't know. So, yeah, she is... She's there going through the motions, and it turns out um, customer service skills, not something she's particularly good at. No, no, but, you know, Audrey is not without her flaws, uh, but, you know, it's Audrey. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd buy perfume off her, and I don't even wear perfume. Um, but yeah, she, she, she basically, 
mocks this older woman who's looking for some fruity smelling perfume. Um, meanwhile, she hears her boss um, come out of the office and speak to our co-worker Jenny, um, saying that he needs to speak to her a bit more in the you know in the clo- uh, in, in his office. She then makes an excuse to leave the <laughs> the perfume counter, makes a beeline for the office sparks up a cigarette and hides in the cupboard to overhear a conversation because she's a badass. Yep. And what we learn is that the perfume counter, as as we would probably have suspected, is sort of a proving ground uh, for our recruiting center, the the farm league of one-eyed jacks. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so the, the manager tells Jenny in inside the office, like first he gives her this little unicorn, this little glass unicorn. And then he's like, look, uh, you know, you can go work at one eye Jacks. There's a chance to, um, you know, make some real money. And also if you're good, you could be in hospitality, which is, you know, doing it. Duncan. Yeah. Well, he, he says that you can go as far as you want to in there and then rhymes off all of them. And then mysteriously drops in, hospitality girl um, in there, of course, but she then asks what that means. And he puts it in a very kind of nonchalant sort of way. As if, you know, that way where people that um, are cleaners, for ex- for example, are environmental specialists and things like, you know how you can put like a, a spin on your job title to make it sound less of what you do. Um, trust me, I do it with my job all the time. I tell people that I'm a drug dealer because my real job is far more boring. Um, but <laughs> like basically, he says, you know, you can like the, the high clientele that comes in, you, you get to chaperone them, which isn't necessarily what a hospitality girl does. It means sex worker. Yes. Um, but he doesn't say sex worker for obvious reasons. But Audrey overhears all this. She's now, she's, she's piecing things together. She's a bright girl. She goes out to speak to Jenny. She says that... She she's done a dumb thing, but she has lost the telephone number that he gave her. Um, and is there any chance that you know she can pass it on? Um, for for I think it's who what's the name of the woman again? Black Black Rose. Black Rose. So he's, she's lost the number. Jenny, not knowing exactly what the situation is, hands the number over so uh, Audrey can phone up and arrange an interview. That's right, and uh, she also discovers a, a little black book in the manager's office, which is a, uh, an, a list of, of women's names in, and star ratings beside yeah. them, and one of those names, it turns out, is Renette Pulaski. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we have shorn up, as we <laughs> rocket towards the end of the season, we have shorn up the fact that, yes... Horn's department store, uh, the girls who worked the perfume counter were being recruited into One Eye Jacks. Renette Pulaski and Laura Palmer were almost certainly uh, in this mix. And uh, then we have a, a cutaway to uh, the double R, mm-hmm. where Hank is talking to Shelly a little bit and ferreting out of her the name of Big Ed. Yeah. Um, not it, like he's doing it in kind of a friendly way, but underneath it all, we understand that he is trying to get Big Ed's name because he suspects that Big Ed was the guy muscling in on his woman, and he's not wrong. 
in fairness. No, turns out Hank is, even though he's nefarious, he's actually quite bright. Yeah, and he also, for no good reason, steals a Zippo off the counter. Because he's still a thief bull. Yeah, it, just to let us know once more, like the fact that he he beat up Leo in the last episode, um, like that's not enough. We also need to see that he's just, any opportunity to do something kind of underhanded and dirty, he takes it. Yeah, I love that. I think that's I think that's a wonderful little thing because just remember, you get those moments of of him trying to put forward the mask of someone that is a reformed character, and then you know the interaction right after when Truman and uh, Cooper come in and they speak to him and basically remind him about his commitments to seeing his parole officer and that you know that he now needs to play within the game, and you get. Truman asking Cooper, you know, does he ever really believe that anyone can reform? And Cooper saying no. And the fact that just seconds before we saw him steal something from a counter, you know, kind of underlies that point in a really satisfying way. I think that's, I think that's some pretty cool writing. Yeah, it, it really is a, a nice touch, and it, it's worth pointing out this this is not written or directed by either Mark Frost or uh, David Lynch, but yeah, I, it it this like the the episode before kind of rockets along it's it you know because we're getting to the end of you know part of this story Mm -hmm. um so let's check in with uh ed and nadine (laughs) no she can't because she's eating bonbons it's more ed i need some milk (laughs) yeah she's sitting on her couch she's watching the rather addictive invitation to love that's now on its 24 hour special constantly playing in Twin Peaks um, and she's she's having herself some chocolate bonbons and at first we think she's she's happy um, but it turns out she's depressed Bo this broke my heart well it's hard not to get caught up in the lives of Ed and Nadine it, it broke my heart because I was thinking to myself you know I don't want to live in a world where someone would not listen to the pitch of Silent Drape Runners yes uh, starring and- Bruce Dern <laughs> Silent drape running. That movie would be completely different if that's what it was all about. Like uh, completely, completely different. I'm gonna say equally as amazing, but, but completely yeah, it would, different. Just him and his robot pals working on drapes <laughs> in space. Oh my god, and and some like in some parallel universe that movie got made. Um but yeah, she's she is she's fully despondent. Um her patent attorney did not want to, you know, even entertain this idea. And she's not upset because her idea didn't well, she is upset because her idea didn't go through, but she really had she's more upset about the life that she had envisaged for herself and Ed after this made her millions. So she basically planned out everything. And this was going to be the way to bring them back together as a couple and give them everything they ever wanted and make them happy. Not understanding that that's not why they're unhappy. It's not to do with money. It's not to do with, you know, there just isn't any love there really. Well, there is from Ed, but Ed loves someone more. He cares for Nadine, but he doesn't love her, I think. Um... And she doesn't understand that. Um, and yeah, at this point, you know, Ed's fully kind of committed to being with Nadine now. 
And yeah, it's, 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 it's a tragic scene. It really is quite a tragic scene in this show because as ridiculous as their idea was, and for no second did I ever think anyone was ever going to sign off on it, when when you see how much... I mean, the character's feeling ridiculous, but when you start to peer into the misery that she is now living in because of all these hopes and dreams that she'd pinned on something that was never going to happen, I, I, I think it's... It's, it's those things that make the show brilliant, I think, is, you know, like, even... You, it's got me feeling sorry for one of the most ridiculous characters in TV history, um, and not many shows can do that. Yeah, it, it and it also highlights once more what a good guy, in Ed theory, is. Ed is. Yeah, yeah that yeah. he's... He can't bring himself to abandon this woman who clearly needs someone or something in her life to provide some kind of stability. Mm-hmm. And and that's it, you know. And Ed, it, it's worth pointing out, is a little gussied up uh, in this scene because he is uh, preparing for his journey out as uh, part of the Bookhouse Boys. One of the greatest things ever. His, his costume is one of the greatest things ever. <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. Um, Never made me want to have curly hair and a moustache as bad as oh, I did watching that. <laughs> I know. Uh so, and Ed, it, it also worth noting, Ed was originally a little bit skeptical of Agent Cooper. Um, and this episode, I think, kind of draws them together in a, yeah. in a great way. But uh, before we get to the Bookhouse Boy shenanigans, um, we have a an interlude with Sheriff Truman and Josie Packard. Because he's like, look, I know you were at this motel the other day. And I need you to tell me why. And she's like, well, you asked me for proof because I suspected that maybe see you next Tuesday. Catherine Martell was plotting against me. Well, Mm -hmm. I I went there. I took pictures. Benjamin Horn, Catherine Martell were at this motel together. I have pictures. Here they are there. I, I heard Catherine talking on the phone. She mentioned a fire and I think she's planning to burn down the mill. And, the thing that's fun about this scene to me is that we now know that Josie Packard is at at the very least playing a couple of different sides here because she has this relationship with Harry, but also this relationship with Benjamin Horn. And we're not certain what her goal is in either case. Yeah. We just know that she is playing both of them for her own ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's so, it's, it's fun. Like Josie Packard, I think, uh, um, like, I think the turn in her character kind of comes out of nowhere of just like, what the, and, but that's part of the fun of it. And then, uh, now everything she says is suspect. Yeah. I think that, and everything, I think the good thing about it is everything she said before is suspect as well. Right. Like, we don't know we don't know what to trust. Like maybe she is responsible at this point for, um, you know, the death of her husband, even like, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we just don't know what she's capable of, uh, and, and what she's using Harry for. But, uh, but then the, the bookhouse boys, or at least the trio of them assemble, which is, uh, big Ed, agent Cooper and Sheriff Truman. And, uh, Agent Cooper is fully tuxed out, looking looking suave as fuck. 
I, I, my, my opinion is that history missed the opportunity for a pretty amazing James Bond. That's all I'm saying. He does look the part. It, he's he like Kyle McLaughlin is, is. I suppose we don't talk about it that much because we feel it's kind of a given. But he is just so incredibly good on this show, and yeah. and so versatile too. Like it's not just the one note. Like you know, I'm a great detective who's also kind of in awe of everyday things. Mm-hmm. But he, yeah, I mean he he can kind of inhabit any role he needs to uh, as part of this investigation. And, uh, but, uh, so, Hawk, of course, uh, yeah, is waiting in the van outside and they are going to go to One-Eyed Jack's posing as oral surgeons Gambling with ten thousand dollars of Federal Bureau of Investigation money, uh, which yeah, which all of it sounds great. If you told me like, here's ten thousand dollars, go gamble, and by the way, Deputy Hawk is going to be driving you there. Uh, I mean, how do you not go to that? You go, of course, front seat, shotgun. Yep, shotgun, <laughs> and I want to hear. I want to hear about uh, the the dream spirits while we're on this ride, Hawk. <laughs> Hawk's greatest hits. Yeah, I just I, just tell me whatever you want to tell me. Goes back to that that table of awesome that we we had in a previous episode. Oh, yeah, and my dreams. Every night that I dream, bow, that's where I go. <laughs> it's my happy place. <laughs> I, I got rid of my Zen garden because now I have that thought. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, also, um, Agent Cooper is taking the Bureau's money without any fear because he knows he's going to win. Yeah, yeah. It's another skill that Cooper just has, which just makes him amazing. Once again, very much like James Bond. Yeah. Like he's going to go in there, he's going to gamble, and he's going to win. There's no doubt he's going to win because he's just that damn good. Yeah, he says, and I can't remember the exact number bits, like I like, I like to bring back like 10 to 20% more than I left with. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we we leave them for a minute because they got to load up in the van and and they're probably talking about just awesome stuff with Hawk. Yeah. And uh, we join See You Next Tuesday, Catherine Martell, <laughs> as a life insurance agent shows up. And... <laughs> And, you know, he does his job. He gets chastised for doing his job, but he just thinks it's kind of weird that a life insurance policy should be taken out for Josie Packard and, you know, she's not there to sign off on it. Right. And, it, well, it's... It, the life insurance policy is for... Catherine Martell, right? That yeah. it, and, and it pays out to Josie Packard. Josie Packard and um, Benjamin as well. Benjamin's the other beneficiary on it. Right. Yeah. So Catherine Martell is now all too aware that, you know, Benjamin Horn and, and Josie Packard have uh, have a little, a little side project. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, sort of the side band. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And 
Uh, Audrey, on the other hand, is on the hunt for Agent Cooper. Can't find him nowhere. Mm-hmm. And so she slips a note under the door. Only just worth mentioning, like, okay, Audrey is still running around. She has information now about One-Eyed Jacks and Benjamin Horns and Horns Department Store's involvement with that. And is trying to get that information to Agent Cooper. Uh, yeah. Who is too busy going through disguises at the local police station. Um, including the curly hair and mustache for Ed. Which greatest thing ever. Greatest thing ever. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah. So. <laughs> Makes him look like he's like, I don't know, he should be playing in Doctor Hook's band or something. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right. But so the Mina bird, they've been nursing back to health. Uh, also importantly, um, they have uh, Agent Cooper's left his voice-activated recorder mm-hmm. uh, there, so if the Mina Bird speaks, they are going to get the voice captured. And as they're doing their investigative stuff, uh, or, or preparing to uh, disguise themselves, a shot rings out, and Waldo the Mina Bird. <laughs> has been assassinated. The biggest travesty about this scene is how many good donuts were sullied that day. Yeah, they, they showed like the stack of donuts on the table and then all of a sudden there's blood splattered across the donuts. <laughs> it's pretty great. As, as well Feathers as, strewn yeah, everywhere. <laughs> yep, yep. And so their their witness has been has been cut down in cold blood. And it's prime. Yeah. The prime of a minor bird's life. Um, But there is a recording on the tape. Yeah, they managed to... What I love is we flip through and hear different conversations people have had with the bird, um, which is kind of fun. But we get the the bird um, in Laura's voice, well, kind of mimicking Laura's voice, saying... um, Stop it, you're hurting me. Leo, no, is the, the phrase in particular. And we're like that. All right, so it's Leo. Right. At this stage, where we're now 100%, it's Leo. Um, and possibly Jack, but more, yeah, or Jacques, sorry. But most likely, Leo. So, you know, we, we, we now have more evidence pointing towards the Leo camp. Um it's just piling up now. I mean if I was if I was a detective right now, I'd be saying, you know, let's throw the book at him. Um that's how confident I would be with all the evidence now as as, as everything's turning up Leo. Yeah, I, I mean not just an investigator, if I were a district attorney responsible yeah. for prosecuting this case, I would feel as if I had enough evidence to convict Leo Johnson at this point. I would think that the only person that could get Leo off is Johnny Cochran. <laughs> right. If <laughs> Oh I don't oh I, I I'll tell you what, I'll go back and edit something in, but there is a if the glove doesn't fit joke yeah. somewhere in there about a minor bird. <laughs> oh my god. So where are we going to next, Bo? Uh one eye jacks, of course. Uh, where Big Ed, Fred and Barney, <laughs> Fred and Barney from the Tri Cities, oral surgeons from the Tri City Cities area. Uh, area. Like, no, no, whoa, whoa. Garage owner, oral surgeon. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> I love that. Takes a bit of time to warm up, but when he does, tell you right now, like Ed is one smooth motherfucker. He has the like when Black Rose, uh, Blackie is is uh, kind of questioning it, questioning him a bit about his, you know, let's say unconvincing story. Yeah. And, but he gives her a little. I'd really like to check out what's under your hood sometime. <laughs> and and immediately, it's a great conversation because he at first he says, you know, like I own a garage. I mean, I'm an oral surgeon, and she says, I've got a car out back with a serious root canal problem. Yeah, <laughs> which, is, which is just a great line. It's yeah, it, the whole scene is great because it's it's Ed like stepping into. Uh, being undercover and and kind of nailing it by the end of the conversation, and also Agent Cooper being like, you know what, you kind of rock, Big Ed, which is something we all knew. Yeah, oh yeah, Big Ed's awesome. And uh, meanwhile, Deputy Hawk is on the other end of uh, the wire that Agent Cooper is wearing. And uh, so they're, you know, there to get information, obviously. But for now, it's time to uh, to do a little bit of gambling. Mm-hmm. Um, so off they go to mill around uh, in in the uh, casino portion of One Eye Jacks. Meanwhile, back at the Palmer household, uh, Maddie is sneaking out late at night, passing by. Leland Palmer, who is, you know, sitting alone in the dark. And the chair of despair, yeah. The chair of despair. <laughs> it's my favorite game show. <laughs> it's hosted by Louis Anderson. <laughs> it's the chair of despair. <laughs> There's no questions. We just remind you of bad things that happened. <laughs> oh god I so badly want that to be real <laughs> remember your puppy Sparks <laughs> he died when you were six no question it just happened <laughs> oh god <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah Ma- Ma- Maddie sneaks out and she's on her way to meet up with James and Donna to enact Operation Confused Jacoby. Right. It, she has donned a wig. Like, she's not the only, or uh, Big Ed's not the only person undercover in this episode. Because Maddie uh, has put on a wig and clothing to look just like Laura Palmer. Which confuses the ever-loving fuck out of James. Because now she just doesn't look like Laura. She is Laura. Yeah. James, uh, I believe, thinks that he is talking to Laura Palmer through much <laughs> yeah, of this James, episode. James like has a system, system, not compute, not compute, not compute. It's like an algorithm's running through that brain. A very simple one um, <laughs> that's now stuck in some sort of causality loop. You know, right. It just won't break out of it at all. He's he's fucked in this episode. He's like a, a record with a scratch in it that's just repeating the same phrase over and over and over again. Oh yeah, it, it's, you look like Laura. Laura's dead, but you're here. You look like Laura. Laura's dead, but you're here. Just over and over again, and till one of his eyes just pops out. 
<laughs> Head goes all scanner and just like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> explodes everywhere. Yeah. Oh, poor James. <laughs> oh yeah. So so yeah, she does. She looks. I mean, she looks very very much the spitting image of Laura Palmer because it's the same actress. <laughs> well, right. Oh dear. It's kind of funny because it's like, well, she put she put on the wig to look like Maddie, and now I don't know. It, like, I I'm sure that for uh, uh, Cheryl Lee. Uh, mm-hmm. the the actress playing Laura Palmer that's got to be kind of this weird role to play of I am playing a character who is playing a character I played before yeah so um, don't think of it too much or you'll get stuck in that same causality loop yeah I know I'll, I'll, I'll get jamesed uh, <laughs> well, well, one of my favorite scenes is, is coming up now so like Audrey is finally she has arrived on the grandest stage of them all. Operation Infiltrate, the, the smut palace, has begun. Um, and she goes in with clearly the worst application ever. It's riddled with holes. She looks far too young to have worked in all the places that she said she's worked. And Blackie's no stranger. You know what I mean? Blackie's clued up. She's a she's a businesswoman, Bo. She's, you know, she gets to that position because she's smart. And like at the first hurdle, Hester, as she's calling herself, um, k- kind of falls by the wayside when she gets confused with the old, uh, the old. Oh, so you know so and so up there, and she says, "Oh yeah," and they're like, "Well, that's not even a real person. It's the name of my dog." And she's like, "Oh no, I'm not going to get the job as this hostess." She's like, oh, "You know, tell me why she didn't entertain you any further." To which. And my head almost did the scanners thing, Bo. Um, she she takes a cherry, including stock, out of her drink, puts the cherry in, eats the cherry, puts the stock in her mouth, and produces it tied in a knot, which she's done with her tongue. And yeah, marry me, Audrey Horn. <laughs> marry me now. It is outstanding. <laughs> I did. You probably did the same as me. I stood up and gave the slow clap into rapturous applause. Uh, well, let's say if you could uh, wear out a streaming video by pausing it and rewinding it, yeah. I would be unable to watch this portion <laughs> of uh, Twin Peaks. Yeah, I stood up like I was applauding her, and then I went to throw a rose at her. You know, like, encore, encore, right. to throw a rose. But I actually reenacted that scene from Silence of the Lambs, where I just threw a handful of cum against my TV. Just like multiple it. migs? <laughs> yeah, multiple migs. I became multiple migs in that scene. In my head, it was a romantic gesture of me throwing a rose. In real life, it was just a handful of semen. <laughs> I can smell your cherry. <laughs> You know what? That's even more sinister than what he actually says. <laughs> Somehow, it really is. I can smell your Catherine Martell. <laughs> oh, so Audrey Horn, so sexy in this scene. It's so unbelievably sexy. And remember, listeners, we've established she's eighteen, so this is all cool. That's okay. I don't have to. I, I don't have to feel shame for my semen throwing. No. Well. <laughs> I'm, Probably should anyway. A little. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it depends on who's doing the cleanup. <laughs> so, so we jump back and um, like this 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 mission to to distract and confuse Jacoby 
is like they're using technology and everything in this because Jacoby is working late, picks up the phone in his office. He's watching, by the way, Invitation to Love, which if you didn't realize is always on everyone's TV, um, answers the phone and it's quote unquote Laura on the phone basically telling him that she's alive, she wants to meet him. He does not believe because he's a rational, sensible person and she tells him to check his front door where he finds a videotape um, and the videotape has Laura in the videotape holding up today's newspaper. And Jacoby is, I think it's safe to say, rocked a little bit. He doesn't he doesn't really, like any rational sense is kind of thrown out the window at this point. Um, she says that she wants him to meet him up at, um, I think it's Sparkwood or something. Um, but it's, uh, Yeah, Sparkwood in 21, that's where Laura took off the back of James's motorcycle. That's right, but weren't exactly clever when they did this because it just so happens that the tape showed a particular gazebo area um, and that happens to be Easter Park and Jacoby pieces it together. But meanwhile, while this is all happening, Bobby is watching from a safe position. He is tailing uh, James um, because... As he said to Shelley earlier on, he's going to take down Leo and James. This is his Machiavellian plan, um, which, which to be honest with you, is like is borderline genius for for this character. This is where Bobby really starts to come into his own. You start to see a bit more of how ruthless he can be as a character. Uh, Jacoby obviously makes makes the, the the quick feet like from a cartoon. He's like da, 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 and then away. He goes, he runs off to, to go to Easter Park. Uh, James and Donna break into the office to see if they can, you know, get the evidence they want. And then Bobby does something quite interesting. What does he do, Bo? Uh, he does what we call in the business an easy rider, um, where you stuff a bunch of drugs into the gas tank of a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was uh, James's motorcycle, of course, with the uh, the end goal being naturally to drop a dime on him. Uh, the cops bust James for one would assume trafficking drugs, given the quantity. Yeah. And then James is out of the picture, and and uh, Leo, uh, who is you know presumably shot, as far as Bobby knows, uh, just doesn't know you know that it's not that bad of a, a wound. Um, but yeah, it's, it is pretty clever. Like this is something James never in a million years would have come up with. I would agree. <laughs> like totally. This is like, this is where James, unfortunately being the nice dumb guy does not give you credit. <laughs> does not make you a winner in this show. No, 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 no. I mean, and my question though is, how do you not have that bag dissolve in gasoline? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a good question. Um, I mean, he, essentially, he doesn't really do a great job of, of disguising it. And I think it comes down to how quickly he's going to phone this tip in and how quickly, you know, if this was a long-term thing, if this was going to take like a week or something, then this plan doesn't work. But because this episode and essentially the season finale are all set over the one night, everything happens in one night in Twin Peaks, um, 
for the purposes of that, we can suspend a bit of our disbelief. And also work on the premise that Bobby, as clever as he is, is still just a kid. You know what I mean? He's still a high school kid, and he, he doesn't understand fully what he's trying to do. He just knows that if he plants drugs, then maybe maybe there's a chance that James will get brought in for it. This is this is a plan of someone who's trying to play in the big leagues, but we've already seen it in the past is not necessarily there yet. He's not he's not Leo or Hank level of malevolent, but he's desperately trying to get there. So yeah, I, I'm with you on that one. It seems a bit a bit of a crap plan, but at the same time, for for the purposes of this show, it maybe does fit in with what sort of character he is he is like um meanwhile though uh donna and james they they uh, have success in here not only do they find the missing videotape but they find something else Bo, what do they find uh I don't, ooh, what do they find i remember the, the video they find the the necklace the oh crap necklace. that's right uh oh i am so sorry i'm a terrible host of this show <laughs> um yeah, which make which for some weird reason gives them the idea that maybe Jacoby's the killer, which is not the right. I think it's James that says that, is it? Or is it Maddie that says that? One of them's like, so Jacoby's the killer, and I'm like, no, you idiot. Yeah, no, it's James because it's dumb, and also Maddie is still at the gazebo. Yeah, and uh, so speaking of the gazebo, should should we hit the end of this episode because it ends kind of abruptly. It does, and the reason it ends abruptly is, once again, like, these last three episodes basically flow completely into each other, right, like, one after another, um, really, really well. So there's no massive, like, where one episode finishes, the next one takes off straight away. It's no, in the morning, we continue on with things. So, yeah, we, we see Jacoby hiding in the bushes, um, as you do, um, and he's, he's looking out to who he believes is Laura. So, you know, he's... And he's, he's a bit, once again, completely perplexed by what he's seeing. Yeah, yeah. It's Well, do we do we see that it is Jacoby? I don't think we do. I think we just we see... We don't at first, yeah, we don't at first. Yeah, so it is just, you know, hey, somebody is, is there watching uh, Maddie, who is disguised as Laura Palmer. And, yeah. and that's it. And then the, the episode just straight up ends because we have um the bookhouse boys hanging out at one-eyed jacks uh you know we, we st- when we leave the episode at least we still have uh donna and james in dr jacoby's office bobby up to his shenanigans leo and oh one thing we we brushed over a little bit but it's worth noting is uh josie packard had a meeting with hank Yes, where they talk about like, hey, there's there's a plan underway, and uh, and Hank is is part of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we are uh, right around the corner from the season finale of episode one, mm-hmm. and yeah, <laughs> I'm it's getting pretty good. Yeah, like these episodes are like they don't have the weirdness of like you know the third episode like we talked about but they are well plotted well paced like every scene is kind of pushing the story forward because it feels like we got to about episode six and they were like hey 
we've only got like three episodes to wrap this up. And so everything just kind of trucks along. Um, I, I think in particular, the, the second episode we discussed in I realization time, mostly because of the mind of bird assassination <laughs> is, is one of my favorite episodes of this season. Yeah. I, I think it, what I like about it is every character gets a bit of on-screen time and it's not just to have the characters on screen per se, it's to actually forward each one of their stories in a satisfying way, which does flow very nicely into the final episode. So that's what I like about it is that we really are at the stage now where we're about to close things out for season one and it would be very easy to to negate or kind of gloss over the importance of some of the time we've spent with other characters, which might not necessarily be there to um, to forward the case of who murdered Laura Palmer, but the show really does kind of start to to dedicate some some decent screen time to to, to most of the characters in here in a way which, like I say, feels like rewarding. Um, and I like that, and I think pacing's a huge thing for the show. It, like, there's a lot when you have so many things going on, there is a tendency to sometimes sacrifice things in order to do one aspect of the story or t- to try and cover some more detail. And I think what what this episode and the previous episode and the the last episode, which we'll talk about in the next episode does really 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 well is that it all flows seamlessly that it really really does that the back half of season one is just this this really fluidic tv watching experience that i think they considering there's different writers involved different directors involved and all the rest you know you don't get that impression you could be forgiven for thinking that the last three episodes of season one are all written and directed by exactly the same person yeah yeah, and uh, the next episode we do is actually going to be written and directed by Mark Frost. So mm-hmm. uh, the finale um, is uh, is is the natural conclusion. Uh, although uh, there are questions left for sure. <laughs> well, what I, what I like about the the fact that we're now doubling up on these episodes is where we we are left with that season finale. And I'm not spoiling anything when I say it's a bit of a cliffhanger. We will then be discussing the first episode of the next season on that same episode. So your cliffhanger will last all of, what, 20 seconds? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're not going to tease you on this show. Uh, we're we're going to set it up. We're going to take you to the brink. And you're going to be like, oh, no, I'm never going to be satisfied. But no, baby. <laughs> season two, episode one, right, right around the corner, right behind it. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, any further thoughts on these two episodes? I, you know, I, I feel like uh, there there is a lot of connective tissue uh, that that happens between all of these, like you said, uh, leading to the finale. Um, I think they're great. I think these are great fun episodes. Uh, unlike, you know, there are some like episode like was like four or something like that. It's kind of a kind of a down note of an episode, especially coming off of three. But uh, but all of these are are super fun, and there's just enough like like sprinkles of weirdness in all of them that it feels like you're watching Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. There's there's um there's there's a lot of really cool things, and there's a lot of 
quirk in the episodes, not for the sake of putting quirk in here. I, you know, it all works. Even the ridiculousness of having the mime aboard as a, as a, like a, like a, a witness, an important witness in the case. Like I said before, which would not necessarily, which would on some level have eyes rolling in the back of the heads of any other show, just works in this world. Like the, the world of Twin Peaks is so wonderfully absurd at times that you can't help but feel yourself just get carried along with it, and you get really invested with the the story. And I think that's the that's what I love about it. That's that's, that's what I really love about the show is you just. You just get swept up on this this journey, and if ridiculous things happen, you just accept them and continue on with it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a whole hell of a lot of fun, and I can't wait to, to, to close out arguably one of the best TV show seasons of all time, um, and then and then usher in one of the most disappointing <laughs> like, like uh, seasons of TV of all time. Um, I hear a lot. It's funny how I remember when, as a kind of final thought, Bo, uh, for something that we have discussed, when we discussed True Detective season two, and I remember when True Detective came out, people were like, this is modern day Twin Peaks. You know, this is the show that is like this ultra serious, surreal, kind of investigative murder TV show. That You know, this is modern day Twin Peaks. And then that second season came out and people were just like, oh, you know, it's rubbish, it's awful, you know, second season Twin Peaks, second season Twin Peaks. Um, and it's not, it's so much better than the second season of Twin Peaks. Um, but what I love about this is how, like, if we've talked about the Mima Bird as being something ridiculous in this show, and you guys have been like, that is kind of ridiculous, you have no idea, you have no idea what you're getting into in terms of the weird and wonderful treasure trove of what the fuck did I just watch and how the fuck do I verbalise it on a podcast that we're going to be doing in, in the coming weeks. So yeah, I'm super excited. This to me is, there's a reason that this show remains as important um, as it does in terms of the lexicon of television uh, series and talking about the importance of the change and dynamic from, from stuff being kind of twee um, to, to things going in a direction where TV could be weirder, it could, ha- it could have really intricate TV plots. You could start really expanding the, the, the kind of storylines into to weird and wonderful areas. And that all dates back to Twin Peaks, but importantly, I think it all dates back to this first season. Eight episodes that even at their worst um, are, are, are just are, are infinitely fascinating character pieces. Um and just a surreal world that you just can't help but love and you can't help but stop watching. You just need the next episode onto the next episode. And you guys don't have long to wait till we talk about the next episode. That is correct, Duncan. Um, yeah, so let us uh, thank our listeners once more for uh, joining us on our uh, exploration, our investigation into the murder of Laura Palmer on the heels of one Agent Dale Cooper. Um, and we will be back to uh, to discuss the final episode of Season 1 and the premiere episode of Season 2 on the next episode. In the meantime, if you would, people, uh, if you get, a, get a second, get, get a little time, you know? Maybe on the weekend. Treat yourself right. As, as Agent Cooper himself said, every day, give yourself a present. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't plan it. Don't expect it, but just when the opportunity arises, 
give yourself a little present. And the present that you give yourself, you, you hop over, you leave us a rating and review. You're going to feel better about yourself. It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> also, check out uh, Duncan on uh, the podcast Under the Stairs. Yeah, by the time this episode drops, my new episode will have dropped and you want to listen to it because it's more david lynch i've started a brand new subset of shows over on the podcast under the stairs called in reverence where i look at the movies that they'll be doing roughly one a month to one every two months where i pick a movie which is just a guaranteed number five out of five for me uh movies that influenced my love of the genre and um, movies that I think are wholly important in the in the terms of cinema and the first episode David Lynch's Blue Velvet so yeah so whole keep lot an of peaks in there ear out for that oh boo oh <laughs> yay sir yay <laughs> cheers not jeers uh um, down some nitrous oxide bow while you're watching that episode and tell everyone that baby wants to fuck uh does he ever oh my god one of the <laughs> weirdest performances in cinema history one of the best performances in cinema history it i i'm I, right booth is one of the scariest characters ever committed he's a walking nightmare he is a walking nightmare it's fucking amazing yeah it, it that's an incredible movie and and kyle mclaughlin again as the small town uh small town guy or the the relative innocent uh, yep. brought into a, a world of corruption and horror. Um, so, yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, you can find that at tputzcast.com. Also, uh, this show, uh, the other shows I do, like Hero Hero Co. Show and the Shodcast, uh, available at legionpodcasts.com. Um, so that will do it for this time out. Uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, say goodnight, Duncan. Good night, Duncan. Oh. Good night. Bye.
fall in search of blood to terrorize your neighborhood. And whosoever shall be found without the soul for getting down must stand and face the hounds of hell and rot inside a corpse's shell. Stay alive, your body starts to shiver. 